the beauty of mindfulness practices, whether it's yoga or whether it's meditation, is not in the fixing you, Sean, or fixing me, Rebecca. It's here for you right now in the muck. It's here for you in the unrest. It's here for you in the times when you might feel broken to say, I'm with you anyway. Like this quiet, still, steady part within ourselves is this way of befriending our own being, our own you know, inner landscape, our self, our soul, however you want to see it. Welcome to Happy Athlete, a podcast about overcoming obstacles and sparking change in ourselves and the world. We'll dig into mindfulness, enhancing performance, jumpstarting our passions, and learn tools to be stronger, happier, more grateful, and at peace. Hi, everyone. This is Sean. Welcome to another episode of Happy Athlete. My guest today is Rebecca Pacheco. Rebecca is an award-winning blogger, author, and contributor to the Boston Globe on a range of mind-body topics. She's been teaching yoga and meditation for more than 20 years. Rebecca is the author of the best-selling book, Do Your Own Thing, published in 2015. Her second book, Still Life, The Myths and Magic of Mindful Living, was released in August of 2021. Rebecca, congrats on the new book and welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me and congrats on the new podcast. Ah, thank you. It's 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 been a long time. We go we go way back in in, in the yoga world. So I'm really excited about uh, you know just catching up with you, but also just what we're going to talk about today, especially you know with this time of year, what's happening in the world, talking about. Um, what has got to be one of your favorite subjects, I assume, because you've written two books on it, and that's uh, that's meditation. So typically how we start the show, we like to go back into a little time machine just to kind of find out your your origin, what, what, what makes you, you know, what got you ticking in, into in your, in your current path or your, what you're currently doing. Um, you first did yoga at age 16. So if, if my math is correct, it would be the <laughs> mid nineties, which means a lot of things. Well, yoga pants weren't invented yet. They were um, not. We, <laughs> we just had pants. You could wear them to yoga. <laughs> right. Right. And then yoga mats, you know, they, the, the, they weren't at target yet. Nope. Um, but, but the big thing is, you know, teenagers um, weren't doing yoga back then. They, they certainly aren't now. So when you got into it, I'm, I'm really interested in what compelled you, you know, at, at the young age of 16, you know, to go to your first yoga class. And, and if you could tell us about that experience. Yeah, of course. Um, I love the picture that you've painted there with the mid 90s, because you're absolutely right. Um, yoga studios were in their very nascent stages. Uh, really, they, they barely existed. And we practiced in places like church basements and, you know, maybe rec centers. I got started in a a refurbished fire station, an old fire station that had become a community center. And I got into it at that very young age for the same reason that most teenagers get into most things. And that is I knew someone older and cooler who did yoga (laughs) and, um, You know, I followed that interest and I walked into the class, however, and it was filled with folks who were not only, you know, older than my parents, but older than my grandparents. Like it was the retirement community in Cape on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And oddly, I felt an immediate sense of belonging and welcome, even though I was 
radically out of place. Um, I just had a very lovely, warm teacher, uh, first yoga teacher, a woman named Carol, who never made a fuss over the fact that I that it was remarkable that I was there. She never said, oh, you're so young. That's so cute. How did you get here? She just presumed that I needed to be there and treated me as such. And, you know, in the beginning, the practice was really just, it was very gentle. It looked, you know, very different from a lot of the styles of yoga, you know, primarily vinyasa, which really exploded and became the most popular way we practice here in the States. Um, and, but there was something there that I connected to immediately and certainly never uh, envisioned it becoming a career. And even in the early stages of my career, it was, it was not my primary focus. And here we are, as you say, you know, 20 something years later, and it's kind of the core of who I am and what I do. Mm. So it's been a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned that there was someone that was like, like influenced you. And I believe it's in the first book, your first book, um, where, um, and her name is Jill, I believe. Yes. Right. Yes. And she was your friend's big sister. You describe her as possessing a, a superpower, which was. Yes. Mentally... And she still does, honestly. <laughs> I, so hi, Jill. We'll send this to her. Um, she was just, you know, one of those kind of formative people in my young life. Um, you know, to put it in perspective, she's now um, a, a really talented therapist and an artist. And she, I believe, just turned 50 and has pink hair. So she's she has superpowers. Do you know what I mean? She's just um, definitely always has always been, in my mind, someone who... Um, you know, is creative, marches to the beat of their own drum, is not interested in following a well-trod path. Um, and and I look up to her. So, and I still do, quite honestly. So, it, um, and it's funny because when you're, when you're young, and I'm sure that you can attest to this, but when you're a young person, people who are four, five, you know, eight years older than you feel like a lifetime away. I mean, they, they feel like superheroes. And then as you age, you're like, wow, I feel like we're much more like peers because the years seem to condense. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> well, let, let's fast forward a few years. So you're, you're teaching and we could probably do a whole podcast on, on, on your teaching experience at the Baptist studio. And just to give um, the listeners some background on this. And it was, you know, now we're into around 2000 and the yoga, the yoga scene is just exploding and, and you know Boston was you know definitely one of the cities New York LA Boston where it was just 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 taking off and um this this studio in particular for sure was 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 super busy and but you um and, and you know, were 22 years old and and now there's a lot of young teachers out there who who were able to get started really young but back then um you know it was teachers i recall were, were it was it was male dominated um and Teachers, you know, who like went to India or came back or, you know, you had all this experience. There was a certain look, a certain type, et cetera. Um, so if you could tell us about like some of the challenges you face it, faced and, and like, you know, did you question yourself? Did others question you and what you're doing? Um, it, it's interesting because 
um, I operated in a very unique space then and even still now. So I was the youngest by age. I was very young. I mean, I was fresh out of college. I had started teaching while I was still in college. Um, and again, not as a career path necessarily, uh, because the yoga industry did not quite exist around me. So it was really just this thing that I loved and and was infatuated with. And I even came at it from kind of an academic perspective. I had studied a lot of Eastern religions in college. I had traveled to India on a study abroad program. So by the time I'm, you know, I'm the mere age of 22, I actually have been doing the thing for six years. So, so that was odd. Um, but thank goodness, because I could lean on that when uh, I was faced with criticism or, um, you know, even condescension or whatever it might be about how young I was. And there was certainly a lot of that. There was, you know, I don't want to take us down a totally different road, but there was certainly sexism was rampant. Certainly um, there there was a lot to maneuver around and, and it, you know, on one level, it seems fitting that my first book would be called Do Your Own Thing, because in many ways I had to orchestrate when I finally made a career in yoga, I had to kind of orchestrate around some of the, you know, established sort of uh, biases that existed, right? And I also come from, you know, we can't pretend that I also didn't come with a set of privileges and people were also predisposed to like me in certain ways or not like me, you know, like we all, we all kind of are, are a mix, but, but your assessment is totally right. It was definitely male dominated. Um, And so the way that I carved my path was by refusing to move, I guess. And, and also by really leaning on what I knew and showing up being, you know, the most prepared, the most well-read, the most studious, the most dedicated that I could possibly be. And, you know, I, you come from an elite athlete background and, and I was never that elite, but I was always an athlete. And so I do think that there's something to be said for that. There was like a level of preparation that I just kind of had wired in from a very young age. And I, I treated it almost like game day. Like every class that I taught was like, all right, like game face on, you know, cell phone. And there were little flip phones back then, flip mm-hmm. phone off. Uh, I, I wrote everything down. You know, I've still, I've been now in this business in one form or another for 20 years. I still write down every class. Like I don't, I am perfectly capable of winging it, but I absolutely never show up and just wing it. Hmm. You know, I can, if I need to, it'll be great. No one will know, but I abide by, you know, the great coach, John Wooden failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And so I think, that gave me quite a bit of runway to work with, even though I was presumably, you know, too young. And and if you didn't know better, you might think I was inexperienced. Um, but I uh, I take my reps very seriously, <laughs> you know, not to belabor the athletic metaphor, but but I but I um I had the benefit of practice and practice and practice and practice. So. Hmm. And I think that's a good thing to tell anyone who wants to teach anything 
or who wants to speak in front of a group or, um, you know, teach your friends, like just get the reps in, teach, teach your friends, teach, uh, just speak it to your partner. Like that was the benefit that I had was I had, you know, started teaching classmates and peers in college. Um, so by the time I got to a, a place like a very, very busy, high profile studio, I wasn't tripping on my left and my right. 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 Yeah. And I think that's so great because I'm right now, like we, we see this in like the teacher training is like that there's a challenge where, um, you know, we're in the world now of, of, of instant gratification. And so they, they want to be, you know, like the prep work that you put in, that was kind of, you know, I wouldn't say it was super common, but it was, that was for the most part, that's when, you know, when you train to be a yoga teacher back then, it was expected that you just kept training and training and training and prepared and prepared. Um, I feel like some of that is, is, is lost these days. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's so much wiring that needs to happen for something to feel second nature. And it, that goes with, with anything, right? I mean, if you watch really elite basketball, you know, NBA players practice, they do the small things over and over and over again. Right. Um, they're constantly on the foul line, like shooting them. It's, it's not an exciting shot, but over and over and over again, just to get those reps. And so it, it's very unsexy to be like, you need to talk someone through a spinal twist right. 72 times until you're able to say it with efficient languaging and so that they understand that the knee comes to the chest on the right side and then you're going to take it across your body, right? Because when you first start out, you stand up in the front of the room and you really do not know your left and right. And you, <laughs> and neither does anyone in the room, by the way. Like suddenly no one knows their left and right in a yoga space. So it's those silly small things that you wire in just mm -hmm. through repetition that then it looks easy. It looks like, oh, look at that, you know young 22 year old woman who looks like maybe she shouldn't know her stuff, but no, I, you know, I, I did. I, <laughs> I made sure I did. <laughs> well, Hey, I, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the one chapter in your book, it, this, 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 this really, um, jumped out at me. Um, you know, there's a big misconception in the yoga and, and beyond yoga, the, the, the self help world that we're broken and we need fixed. And mm -hmm. it's it, to the point where it's, it's like perpetuated by, I don't know what you want to call them, like self-proclaimed gurus. And I think for, for a lot of people who get into meditation and yoga, this can really derail them. So I was hoping you could, you could, you know, speak to this because my understanding, you know, for the, the yoga philosophy is that is the opposite, right? Like, you know, yeah. we're, we're already perfect. You know, maybe we we've lost our way, but you, you have this beautiful chapter in your book that addresses this misconception of, of being broken. Could, could you yeah. talk to us about this? Yeah, it's really funny. You know, when you write a book, you live with it for a very long time and it's just you. And you have no idea really what parts of it will connect with the audience. And the chapter that you've described and even the passage that you've described is by far and away the most quoted chapter. Hmm. Um, and the line that I use that, that maybe you're referencing or that a lot of people reference is that uh, you are not an entity to be fixed because you are not a fixed entity. And it took me a long time to learn that. 
And I think your point is the one that I was really hoping to speak directly to, which is that um, we need fixing, that we need to be tidy little yogis who drink all the green juice and, you know, don't eat this and do do this and, you know, uh, look a certain way and act a certain way and all will be well. (laughs) And oftentimes there's a sales pitch involved in that. You know, the guru that is telling you that you're broken and you need to be fixed conveniently has a program for you for $19.99 that you just have to sign up for. And and I don't mean to come off as as judgmental in that way. I guess what I my main focus is that you might feel broken. I mean, we've all experienced times in our lives we are living through an insanely difficult time, an uncertain time, um, a time of political and social unrest, um, of pain and anxiety and. And so things can feel broken all around us. Things might feel broken within us. But the beauty of mindfulness practices, whether it's yoga or whether it's meditation, is not in the fixing you, Sean, or fixing me, Rebecca. It's in, um, you know, maybe this will make you better, but it doesn't make you better by telling you how broken you are. It doesn't make you better by holding out to be there for you until you're a you know, happier, shinier version of yourself. It's here for you right now in the muck. It's here for you in the unrest. It's here for you in the times when you might feel broken to say, I'm with you anyway. Like this quiet, still, steady part within ourselves is this way of befriending our own being, our own, you know, inner landscape, ourself, our soul, however you want to see it. Um, because the truth is that meditation, yoga, they make a lot of things better. They make a great many things better. They make athletic performance better for one, Um, but not by telling us we're broken or by focusing on what's not there. It's like, I'm with you for the journey. You don't need to be fixed because you're, you're incomplete already. It's all, we're all in process. You know, we were all three feet tall at one point. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so yeah, that had been a, a point of frustration for me for a long time. Um, I think sometimes I still have to catch myself because the truth is that the nature of life is that things will go wrong, things break all the time, and and we are constantly in a state of repair and respair and resuscitation. Um, but, but that's just the nature of life. It doesn't mean we did something wrong or that we need to buy something or, you know, look different or we can make changes, but we need something that's with us for the ride. We need to have our, our own sense of inner stability and and a constitution that says, uh, I'm here for you regardless, like a good friend would. Right. Right. That's fantastic. I, I wanted to ask you, I know like med- mindfulness is just all over the place. It's like the huge buzzword, but it's obviously more than a buzzword. <laughs> but um, for those who are looking to get into to mindfulness or they're looking to get a meditation or into both, yeah. um, what, what's the difference? How, how, do you, how do you describe when someone asks that? What's, what is the difference between meditation and mindfulness? Yeah, it's a great question. So they are, meditation and mindfulness are not necessarily the same thing, although 
linguistically, we flop them around all the time. And you'll hear me do the same thing. And that's not wrong. Uh, we interchange them all the time, and that's okay. But they, but they are two slightly different things. So when we speak of meditation, we're talking about usually the formal practice of often sitting down, focusing on some object of our attention, most popularly the breath, and, uh, you know, watching our thoughts. Whereas mindfulness is a state of being that can happen anytime, anywhere. Right now, I'm trying to be very mindful, talking to Sean, you know, talking to you on this podcast. I'm uh, trying to be nowhere else but right here in this chair with my feet on the floor. I can feel the temperature of, you know, the the window outside a little. It's closed, but it's a cold day in New England, so I can kind of feel the temperature. So all of the ways that we use our senses to be in the moment, that's different from formal meditation practice. So that's the difference between the two. One is a practice. One is a state of being that you can do anytime. So the, the book really tries to illuminate both of them and and ideally give people ways to practice them however they want in their life. Because at different points in our lives, different things are possible. You know, it might be that people had a very disciplined meditation practice before the kids or after the kids went to school, you could sit down and meditate for your 20 minutes in your living room. And now perhaps, you know, then for a while, your children weren't going to school, the living room was now the office and, you know, life changes. So then the meditation practice, the mindfulness practice has to change too. Mm, That's great. Super simple and practical. I love it. Yeah. But, you know, it's having that creativity to change it when it needs to be changed. You know, we these practices are really important, but if we get too rigidly attached to like how it needs to be, then it becomes one more thing that can cause us stress, <laughs> right? Right, right, exactly. Well, that made me just think of your um your one part where like in the, in the myths part, um the one about stopping thoughts. And there, there's a quote at the beginning of the chapter. I, I forget who said it, but I'm, I'm, you'll be able to tell us for sure. Um, if it weren't for my mind, my <laughs> meditation would be excellent, which is so great because I think a lot of us, when we think, oh, I'm going to take up meditation. Why are my thoughts not stopping? My meditation's not working. They just keep going. But you have a great way to talk yes. about this. <laughs> yes. And that's Pema Chodron. That's right. That's whom right. I love. Um, and I think that if you haven't meditated and you start, that is precisely the feeling. You're like, whoa, I know this would be good for me, but my mind is not cut out for this. Right. Yeah. I mean, within within seconds, our minds are all over the place. And that is because we have this mythic perception of what meditation should be. I should be a monk on a mountaintop and my mind goes utterly quiet and all is blissful. And when that doesn't happen, we're like, oh my gosh, I effed it up. But, <laughs> you know, the the way that I like to approach people and approach any of these practices is, no, you, you didn't eff it up. <laughs> you didn't mess it up. Um, you know, that actually is the meditation. It's not an interruption to the meditation. The beginning again is the practice. And that echoes life itself. Because how often in your life... Have you had to begin again? Have you had to start over after you made a mistake? You know, I sometimes, well, in another period of life when when we were all gathering together more frequently, I would 
I would ask people to raise their hands and I would say, maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but how many of you have ever in your life made a mistake? And everyone giggles because like, of course, we've all made millions. We raise both hands. Hi. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Me too. How many of you have ever, ever had to start over? Me too. Um, how many of you have ever set a goal and it didn't work out that way and you had to reassess? So to have a thought in meditation is a nice little Petri dish, a nice little practical way of taking a breath and going, whew, okay, we're going we're gonna to reset. We're going to refresh. We're going to begin again. Yeah. And then that's great. And then there's the other one that you talk about too, like doing it wrong or, um, you know, um, I'm not good at this. Yes. That's another good one. Could you talk to us about the, the whole, like, you know, doing it wrong, the right way, wrong way with meditation? Yes. Yes. Um, meditation is not a performance-based activity. And it's tricky to wire that into our mind. It's a really hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. It's so learning. difficult. And I think it's even more difficult now than, than ever historically, because now we really want to measure things. We want to measure the likes. We want to put things on a clock. We want to know how much money they make or how much traction they get. Everything should be quantifiable and measurable. And what do you mean it's not performance-based? What do you mean I can't do better? Um, what do you mean I can't say I had a good meditation? <laughs> and and the, the truth is it's an area of freedom. Like it's it sounds a little crazy. Like, what do you mean I can't be good at this? how do I measure it? Right. But imagine a place in your life where you didn't have to worry about doing it, quote unquote, right. Like anytime I hear that, even when I say it, it makes me take a breath like, oh, place in my life where I don't have to worry about how good it is. It just is. Because the thing about meditation practice is maybe you do it for 10 minutes or 12 minutes or 20 minutes. But it's not something, but, but the effects of it are felt for the remaining 23 hours and 50 minutes or 45 minutes or 23 hours and 40 minutes of the day, right? So it's not a matter of how well you do it or where you do it or how often you think about ordering pizza for dinner, <laughs> All that matters is that you set the intention and you do it. There's a, a beautiful quote that I also share in the book. So what is a good meditator then? One who meditates. Mm. And it's hard to remember. So I, I like to remind myself. I like to remind my students and my readers. But it's really important, I think, especially now for us to have places in our lives that are free from the constraints of performance. <laughs> what did you say about the one, one who meditates? What was that quote again? Uh, so there's this beautiful quote that I also share in my book. So what is a good meditator then? One who meditates. Yeah. So that's awesome. That's so that my, my next question is my guess is the biggest, oh, uh, let's call it reason to not meditate is I don't have the time. Oh, huge. Oh, huge. <laughs> right. Is this, if we did a scientific poll of some sort, this would be by far number one, right? Yeah. And you know what? <laughs> you know what? People who say that are not wrong. That's the thing. 
they're not wrong. They might not have a lot of time. Mm -hmm. uh, there are plenty of days I do not have a lot of time, but I have some time. I have at least one minute. You know, so it's funny that chapter, I actually rewrote the chapter about not having enough time many times. <laughs> I spent <laughs> a lot of time on that chapter. And in the end, I realized this has to be a short chapter. I love that. I love that. Cause I, I, I thought that was, that was fantastic. It I makes so much, like, yes. <laughs> like this has to do the thing that it's preaching. It has to be short. It has yeah. to give a solution. So there's a one minute meditation in that chapter. Um, and I, and I think, you know, we have to look at things a little bit more holistically, a little bit more cumulatively. I think we're programmed to be very all or none, at least I'll speak for myself. I am sometimes all or none to a fault. And the truth is that something is often better than nothing. It's usually better than nothing that goes for exercise Usually if we do something, we will feel better rather than skipping our movement for the day altogether. Um, and with meditation, it's similar. You may not have 20 minutes. You may not have 10 minutes, but you probably have 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just having that wiring of I'm going to do something every day. And what are the top three to five things, go to tricks or tools that work for me? Um, and the, the book is not necessarily, uh, it's not, it's certainly not rigid in how to approach these things. Um, because I know that everyone is different. So hopefully everyone figures out that they have a little bit of time. All right, Rebecca, Hey, it's, it's time for you to, to, to plug away. Um, where <laughs> can they, you know, get in touch with you where, especially, you know, where can they find your book? Where can they find you on social media? The stage is yours. Oh, thank you. This was a really fun conversation. First of all, thank you. Um, so if you're interested in buying the book, Still Life, The Myths and Magic of Mindful Living, um, the holidays are coming up as we record this. So maybe that would be a nice gift for folks. You can buy it wherever books are sold. And there's also a website, stilllifebook.com. And you can keep in touch with me online, all, you know, the fun places on social media. I'm Omgal, five letters, O-M-G-A-L. And I think that about covers it. All right. Hey, well, hey, thank you so much, Rebecca. It was, it was so great to catch up again. And thanks, everyone out there for listening. Please share this episode with anyone you think could benefit and catch up with you on the next episode. Thanks again, everyone. <laughs>